kind of hard sometimes to know, to know how to be a good church, isn't it? Like in different settings, it might look a little different. Um, I remember reading a book over 10 years ago with a story in it that I haven't forgotten. So you know sometimes you read books and you don't remember any of it like the next day. But this book, there was a story in there that, uh, that stuck with me enough that I, I still think about it and I still am inspired by it. It was the book Blue Like Jazz, and Donald Miller's the author, and some of you maybe have read it. Uh, but the story is about him and a few of his friends that were trying to be Jesus followers. They were living on the campus of a super secularized university in Portland called Reed University. And so they're trying to figure out what it looks like to be uh, Christians in this place that wants nothing to do with it, that is a sort of set up really to reject the whole idea of it, and that prides itself on that really. And so they're kind of in a very challenging space to be themselves or to step into the things that they're saying they believe in this place. And so they start to, uh, they start to kind of pray together, think together about how they can respond. And as the story goes, I guess, uh, Donald Miller, just as a joke, said, well, you know, the, the festival that's coming up, um, which really is like this, this week-long uh, debauchery sort of situation where everybody just turns into absolute animals, the school gets shut, shut down, and it's just like party on, on steroids. So that would be the place where maybe we can make some sort of a statement to our community. And so they, they started to plan for that, and they're sort of brainstorming, and he jokingly said, you know what we should do is we should set up a confession booth, because there's going to be lots of opportunity for people that week to have some things that they feel badly about. So what if we build in the center of campus, in one of the main areas, a booth where, you know, it says, come confess your sins, and, and then people can come along, tell us what they did that's wrong, and whatever. And it was just a joke, you know, but his, his friend, Tony, who he's sitting with, took it seriously and thought, you know, there's something good about that idea. It's hard to know how to be a church. It's hard to know how to step into different situations at different times and carry with us the message of good news by the power of God's Spirit into things that aren't always obvious. More on that story in a bit. Today we're looking at a passage in the book of Acts that many people turn to as kind of the ideal time, the big moment where the church really got it right. The early church, they, you know, it's just right after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrived in a new way and the church just was kicking it through the uprights uh, in every way. And I want to look at that together today. But before we do, why don't we just invite God into how we read his word today. We thank you, Lord. That your word is alive and active, that it can change us, it can shift us, that it can alert us to things in us that are biases that aren't from you, that it can, it can move us, it can convict us, it can comfort and encourage us. And so we invite you today, and whatever you want to do through the reading of your word, to do that. Uh, we want to be open to the voice of your spirit today, and so as we look at it, we ask you to speak in your name, Jesus. Amen. So for those of you that are just here today for the first time, weren't here the last couple weeks or whatever, um, we're taking time as a community to work through the first half of the book of Acts. So kind of everything up to when Paul goes on his missionary journeys. So we're going to take our time kind of working through Acts and um, going chapter by chapter and looking at different themes. 
So if you're looking for something to be reading on your own in Scripture these days, maybe the book of Acts would be a good thing to read along with us. Because we aren't going to cover every single verse, but it is sometimes cool if we can be thinking about the things before we're talking about them here. Because it just rounds out our experience and we really learn a bit more, don't we? So, uh, plug for the book of Acts. Uh, we're also pairing it with this book called Oikonomics, which... Uh, Diana reference that we have a book club. And oikonomics is this idea of how do we live as oikoi, which is the Greek word for these extended families that Jesus operated within. How do we live as spiritual extended families in a way where we get our priorities right? Okay, so that book is really thought-provoking. It addresses which capitals in your life are you putting in which order. So it's financial capital, spiritual, relational, physical, and so on, and how we order them. So if, you have, if you're wondering what we're, what we're looking at, the book's in the back, Economics. It's a tiny, short little read. So that, and then we're also pairing it with this vision of, of these organic expressions of what New Heights is about, that we're calling hubs, that we can have going on around our community. And so hubs are places where people are growing, where people are gathering and eating food together or doing activities together, where people that would never step foot in church in a million years are invited to come and participate. In fact, a hub is really succeeding if it's not inviting too many Christians because we want it to be a space that organically is a place where people that would never want to be part of a church might be interested. So um, those things are all kind of part of what we're diving into over the next months together as a church. We're trying to link them together. Uh, so in the midst of that, we find ourselves here at the beginning of the book of Acts. And we've talked about the transition from Luke to Acts. Ben had a wonderful uh, message last week about the, the Holy Spirit and how we interact with the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. Uh, I didn't get to hear it, unfortunately, but I hear it was wonderful. Um, so uh, I want to move on to the end of Acts chapter 2, which we're going to put up on the screen. Because this is what many people point to. They say the early church really found some elements that in the foundation of what it means to be a community, they got these things right. It says they devoted themselves, this is right after Pentecost, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, which is this idea I like to, to describe fellowship as just hanging out with each other, enjoying each other's company, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, so there was a reverence about what was going on in their community, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, so some, some crazy, awesome breakthrough kind of stuff was happening in people's lives. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, like people were sacrificing things. They made, made sacrifices for one another so that people were doing well. Um, every day they continued to meet the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. It wasn't just communion time. It was eating together. It was being together. Uh, and they ate, with, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And they pointed their praise at God. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So a little bit of background here. So where do we find ourselves in the, in the midst of this description? Okay? So just a little earlier on this page in Acts chapter 2 was the event 
that really is the reason we call Acts the gospel of the Holy Spirit. You know, so it's almost like we talk about the four, about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or about Jesus. Acts is really this book that helps us understand how the Spirit starts to operate in a new way among God's people after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we have this new sort of period in time, and we see pretty quickly that a new social structure starts to emerge where people start to live in a different kind of community. But just before this happens, or this is stated, is this Pentecost time, this time when the Holy Spirit comes. And many of us have thought that's kind of when the church, you know, not Jesus and his disciples anymore, but the church itself was, was birthed. And I think, I think Pentecost is pretty close to the beginning, but I want to suggest that it isn't the first thing that happens that's sort of the description of what the foundations of the church really should be, or what God's people that are now living into what Jesus has modeled should look like. I think something happens even before that. Okay, but just while we're on Pentecost, you'll remember Passover happens. That's the time Jesus is crucified. And then Pentecost is, is a word that talks that has 50 embedded in it. 50 days after, 50 days after Passover is Pentecost. So a week of weeks, so seven weeks after, that's the time where all the harvest is being brought in. You remember maybe from the summer we talked about this, where at, at uh, I was getting mixed up. Passover, at Passover, the first offerings of the harvest come. So lots of people go to a huge feast in, in Jerusalem, if you're Jewish. And then 50 days later, it's sort of like harvest is wrapping up now. And so it's like bookends on harvest time. So in June, all these people come back together from all over the place. So Jerusalem is just teeming with people. Packed with people from all different kinds of places that speak different languages and so on. And that's a time where something magnificent happens with the Holy Spirit. But it's not the first thing that we should look at that happens in terms of how the church starts to understand itself. So backing up a little bit, we know that when Jesus was operating with his disciples, he was giving these hints that something was coming. That when he leaves the scene that we wouldn't be left without an advocate. And so when we have the verses in John there. In John 14 and, and John 20, just whip through these for sake of time. You remember Jesus' words. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And then this kind of promise that you see. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you. Okay, so just listen to the words he picks. An advocate to help you and be with you. Forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. It's like you know me, you know the Father, you know him. For he lives with you, and get this word, and will be in you. I remember one time somebody described how awesome it would be to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to be there with Jesus. And I remember somebody saying, it's funny because the disciples that were walking with Jesus probably would have said, how awesome it would be to have the Spirit of God in you. You know, it's like the perspective difference. We think it would be great to, you know, we just want to be with Jesus in person. Let's just agree that both would be great, okay? Both would be great. Walking with Jesus, 
Or, from their perspective, the gift of the Spirit operating inside of us, helping us know the Spirit of Jesus, what He actually cares about, what, how He wants us to operate, how He wants us to become more like Jesus. Uh, then we jump down to the second one, John 20. This is getting closer uh, to Pentecost. It says, Again, Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So in the same way that Jesus has been sent, He's sending us. But He doesn't send us independent of some sort of empowerment and help. He says, I'm, I'm sending you with that helper that I've promised. And with that, He breathed on them. Which links into a lot of what Ben was saying last week, as I understand. So He breathes on them, and He says, receive the Holy Spirit, the same empowering source that Jesus operated in. And then, the next thing we kind of see is Jesus saying, after he's resurrected, you remember what he tells his disciples to do? Just wait. Just don't do anything. Just wait. Which, you know, is the worst thing to hear when you're fired up and you want to do something. You know, but the, the word is wait until you receive this gift. Wait until this promise becomes fulfilled in front of you, and then you're going to know what to do. And so what I think is the first gathering of church is those men and women back in the upper room waiting, listening, asking, what is the Holy Spirit going to say to us? What is this gift that God's describing for us? What is it that we're waiting for? And they're asking God, show us. Show us what you want us to do. Show us how you want us to be. Show us what it means to be this new social structure uh, that, that can't be the same now that we've encountered Jesus. And then as we know from last week what we talked about, the Holy Spirit has this dramatic entrance where we see the power of this wind blowing into human experience in a way unlike we've seen in the scriptures before. Peter gets up, he's fired up, gives an amazing sermon, like 3,000 people decide, okay, we're in, and then we get to our text for today. Which, let's put it back up there. I'm not going to talk about it a long time, but I do want to hit the four big ones, okay? So we see they devoted themselves first to what? The apostles' teaching. So teaching, if you look up, like, the, I looked up all the words in, um, in Greek, okay, because I just thought, okay, let's see what the nuance of these actual words are. So the teaching, it, it gets to the idea of the dissemination of information. So, like, what I just taught what teaching is. I disseminated the information, you know, so that's, that's kind of um, obvious. But, but they said, this isn't something where we independently don't learn from one another. But they actually were together learning from the, the people that had walked with Jesus. So it wasn't something that we just sort of are self-taught or where we're independently kind of interpreting things on our own. But it's, it's as a, a Bible professor at CBC that we, have, we interviewed a couple years ago. He said, the Bible is something we can really experience ourselves, but it also has to be taught. Because there's elements to it that are beyond what you just know, especially the further we get <clears throat> from the time that it was written. So the first thing was they were listening to teaching, things that brought nuance and understanding to, uh, to what 
the Holy Spirit had begun to birth in them. Okay, then the second thing, fellowship. Now this is this is the one that is always everybody's favorite. I mean, maybe not radical introverts, but fellowship is just hanging out together, having fun together, being community with one another. Um, I, I love the, the turn of phrase, like community is one thing, but communitas is sort of more what the, what the church looks like. It's community plus a bit of a task, you know, is how I like to, how I like to describe that idea. But communitas is this idea that we're, we exist together not just to have fun, but we also have similar purposes. We have things that we're working on together or, or things that we want to see happen together. And so that's the second, that's an added element to just hanging out. It's for reasons. To the breaking of bread. Now, we have bread on the tables, and we know that this was uh, something Jesus said, when you break bread, do this in remembrance of me. Um, and so some people think it's like communion time. You know, they were having communion just left, right, and center. Uh, I think more, more so that they were, that they were in community, and they were in communion with God. And they were certainly taking a reverent stance on remembering the symbol that Jesus used for bread and wine. But I think the point here is that they were eating together. And it says it later. They were eating together. They were doing it in a way that remembered Jesus and his sacrifice. And it was a, t a thing that really drew them together. It was an important piece of how they operated as a community. They remembered something that, that spoke to them of the fact that they weren't just some normal community, but that it was birthed out of Jesus' sacrifice that was inviting them into a whole new expression of life, his life. And then finally to this last kind of stuffy word for some of us, prayer. Yeah, for me, the word prayer feels a little stuffy. And I think it's because of some of the ways I've experienced it. It was and is stuffy sometimes. Where it's like we get together and, um, and our, our voices shift a bit sometimes when we use a whole bunch of fancy words and terminology. And we wonder, I think if we're honest sometimes, when we do it, if it's coming from a real place. I'm not saying that that's always the case. Obviously, there's communication with God that's coming right from the heart, that's meaningful. But sometimes it feels stuffy, right? Well, this is where uh, I thought, I'm going to look this up. I want to figure out what the actual word is and what it means. So they devoted themselves to prayer. Well, the word is, I had to write this one down, prosukion. Okay, prosukion, or prosukion is the root word. And prosukion, as I understand it from like Strong's Greek dictionary, is that it's an interaction. Okay, get this, because I think this is a big part of what I want to say. Okay? Prosukion is an interaction with the Lord, with God, where human wishes are switched with his wishes. It's not like rocket science, right? But it's certainly not stuffy. It's an exchange where we're bringing before God the ways we're interpreting things and then inviting God to shift us in a repenting way to what he wants. Which, I, like, I'd love if we could just say that. Prosupion, a, a wish exchange. Or like a, a, a shift in us seeing 
more that can come out of a situation because we have God's eyes on the situation now. I think that is a, a, a helpful way to be inspired by this kind of prayer. And it's not the only kind of prayer. There's intercessory prayer. There's, there's other kinds of prayer which we won't get into today. But this, what they were doing was sitting before God with the things they thought should happen and inviting God's spirit to exchange what they wanted with what he wanted. Did we pray like that? Is that your experience? I think sometimes that's been my experience. A lot of the time, it's um, me expressing how my wishes ought to be God's. You know? <laughs> oh, like I'm the only one. <laughs> or you're like, this really needs to change God. You know? And, but it's, it's different when it's, I think this is the way it should happen, but I want... I want to be in a space where my spirit is interacting with your spirit and you shifting my wishes, you shifting what I want to see the things that you want. That's a different thing, I think, than what we sometimes feel as a stuffy expression. And then, as you would imagine, a community that is hanging out, that's focused on who Jesus was, that's listening to teaching and then weighing it in a way where they're asking God's spirit to shift them practically, starts to see some crazy stuff happen. Starts to see people saying like, oh, I wish that I could keep everything that I have. Seems like God wishes that I give some of it to people that really need it. And you just start to see how these, this prayer thing, this prosukion kind of prayer, actually results in action. That it, it doesn't end with words that are expressed in, into like a mist. And then you kind of have misted your prayers and you can feel good about yourself. It's, it's an exchange. It's saying, show me things. Tell me things. Interpret how I'm living life so that I can do it in the way you see best. See that as, isn't that more interesting? Something we want? Make me the best version of myself is the way that I think of that root attitude, the best root attitude we can bring to prosukion kind of prayer. And so just a couple takeaways before I finish the story and then we're on to actually practicing what we're talking about here. The irony for me is that the church, after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit lands and all these dramatic, incredible, wonderful things happen, looks a lot like before. You know, so it's like they're back in the upper. They, we had this incredible experience where God's Spirit met us. And their impulse is to get back together and to share life together again like they were when they were waiting. And it's like they're in this perpetual waiting for what will come next. And I think the takeaway from that is that when we're dealing with what we're meant to do or how we're discerning life decisions, there's an upper room invitation there. This time of waiting and listening and weighing our wishes versus God's wishes before we see sometimes, not always, God's spirit act and move. And it's, I think it's just something where we see this, 
that their instinct is to go back to being in community again, because when they tried it the first time, they saw an incredible move of God. So that's the first takeaway that I had. I think the second, I was writing them down. Um, I think the second is kind of sorting out, for me, the question I was asking is, well, how does the Holy Spirit connect to prosupion? You know? So it's like, how do I think about God's Spirit and prayer? Have you, have you thought about that? Because, you know, you know I've, I heard it helpful one time where when we prosupii, or however you say the word, <laughs> um, when we do that, uh, we pray in the name of Jesus, which means in the character and in the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus, to the glory of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if we're people who believe in the Trinity, which we do, I do, then that's kind of a helpful way to think about it. So we, we pray in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. And so it's all kind of one, but it's kind of three, two which is, that's not what I'll <laughs> um, And so we have this invitation to engage with the spirit in a way that speaks to our spirit. So it's a spirit kind of thing, exchange that's going on. But it's also an empowering thing. So it's the way that we receive power is from the Holy Spirit. And power might look like Pentecost. And, you know, some people... Um, experience those things. But power can look like a lot of different things. It can be, like in here, favor of all the people. The Spirit seems to give like this ability for them to be loved by the folks around them. Power can be about timing. The Spirit helps us recognize when to act and when to not, when to speak, when to zip it. Man, does that help in parenting. That is power when the spirit says, oh, not right now. You know, or marriage, even more so. Maybe. Um, yeah, that's power. That's not not power. That's, that's the spirit's power if we're receiving something where our wishes are exchanged for God's. It can look like other things. It can look like faith. Where we are trusting in something that we don't necessarily know is going to happen except by a power that, that we receive that's not from ourselves. It can look like courage. It can look like provision. It can look like gifts from God's Spirit, like wisdom or knowledge or prophecy or all, all kinds of things that are listed. It can look like fruit. Power can be expressed in patience. In like patience that can't be from me. Or patience or, or love, joy, fruit, all the fruits of the Spirit can be expressions of how God's Spirit moves in power. There's probably more takeaways, but I don't want to go on too long here. I want to read this. Um, there was a woman named Carmen Renee Berry. She wrote this book uh, called the Unauthorized Guide to Choosing a Church. 
And it was inspired kind of by how she had decided that church people just continued to let her down and so had left any expression of church because she, she said she'd just grown cynical and she withdrew because she was just constantly disappointed by members who failed to act as Christian as she wanted them to. And then she wrote this in her book. She said, I, I had overlooked one essential factor, that I am as finite and flawed as everyone else. When a friend committed suicide, she says in her book, I realized I could become too cynical and too lost and too alone. And I needed a church. I needed a community of believers. I needed to live in my faith. And I needed to visit my doubts with people. Something happens there that simply doesn't happen when you're alone in prayer or on the internet. As much as I hate to admit it, my faith is enhanced and enlarged when in relationship to other less than perfect human beings. And so we see, I think the other takeaway is that the spirit, things that we read about, seem to be connected to when people are together. Now that's not to say that God's spirit doesn't meet us individually. But it's just to say that there's something that I think is a model and an invitation of us needing one another for a greater understanding of who God is. Does that sound right? What are you going to say? No, that's bonkers. <laughs> I think that sounds right. Oh, it's hers. So back to Portland, Reed University. Um, crazy Tony says, we really should do this confessional booth. Remember? And so they said, okay, we're going to do it. Um, there's like seven of them. They said, we're going to build a confessional booth. We're going to put it in the center of the university. And then Tony turns to them and says, but, but there's one change. Instead of asking people to confess, we're going to confess. We're going to confess all the ways that we should have been the church and weren't on this campus. And so at debauchery, 2004, or whatever it was, the festival was called, um, they set up the booth and they said, come for confession. And I just want to read this part before we go to communion. So the lead up is the booth has been being built and people are kind of wondering what the heck's going on. And, you know, the sign says confession and so on. And they're getting a little like, oh, what were we speaking? We shouldn't do this. And finally, like, uh, Donald goes inside the booth they've made and somebody opens the curtain and walks in and that's where we pick it up. And then someone opened up the curtain and walked in saying they were our first customer. What's up, man? <laughs> Duder sat himself on the chair with a smile on his face. He said his name was Jake. I shook his hand because I didn't really know what else to do. So what is this? Am I supposed to tell you all the juicy gossip I've done at the Ren Fair here? No. Okay, well then what? What's the game? He asked. It's not really a game. It's more of a confession thing. So you want me to confess my sins, right? No, that's not what we're doing really. So what's the deal, man? Well, we're a group of Christians here on campus. You know, 
I see. Strange place for Christians, says Jake, but I'm listening. Thanks, I told him. He was being very patient and gracious. Anyway, there's this group of us. You can tell he's really excited at this point. Just a few of us were thinking about the way Christians have sort of wronged people over time. You know, the Crusades and all that stuff. Well, I doubt you were personally involved with any of that, Jake said. No, I wasn't, I told him. But the thing is, we're trying to be followers of Jesus, and we believed he represented certain ideas that we have not done a good job at representing. He's asked us to represent him well, and we failed him at that. I see, Jake said. So there's a group of us on campus who wanted to confess to you. You're confessing to me, Jake said with a laugh. Yeah, we're confessing to you. I mean, I'm confessing to you. You're serious. His laugh turned to something of a straight face. I told him, yeah, I'm serious. He looked at me and told me I didn't have to do it. I told him I did have to do it. And I felt very strongly in that moment that I was supposed to tell Jake that I was sorry for everything. What are you confessing, he asked. Well, there's a lot, but I'll keep it short. Jesus said to feed the poor and to heal the sick. I've never done much about that. Jesus said to love those that persecute you. I actually lash out, especially if I feel threatened. Jesus did not mix his spirituality with politics. I grew up doing that. I know all of this was wrong, and I know that a lot of people will not listen to the words of Christ because of people like me, who know him, but carry our own agendas into the conversation, rather than just relaying the message Christ wanted to get across. So I've not been a good follower of Jesus. There's a lot more to know. It's all right, man, Jake said, very tenderly at this point. In a, a room together. His eyes were starting to water. Well, I said, clearing my throat, I'm sorry for all that. I forgive you, Jake said. And he meant it. Thanks, I told him. He sat there and looked at the floor and then into the fire of a candle. It's really cool what you guys are doing, he said. A lot of people need to hear this. I don't know whether to thank you for that or not, I laughed. I have to sit here and confess all of my crap. He looked at me very seriously, and he said, it's worth it. He shook my hand, and when he left the booth, there was somebody else ready to get in. It went like that for a couple of hours. I talked to about 30 people, and Tony took confessions on a picnic table outside the booth. Many people wanted to hug me when we were done. All of the people who visited the booth were grateful and gracious. I was being changed through the process. And I think those who came into the booth were being changed too. It's good, right? So today, in the way that we break bread together, we don't want the long preamble that isn't required to operate on the fly 
that whenever you eat this, do this in remembrance of me, says that we don't need a 20-minute prelude every time we do it. Not that it's bad to set us up for the way that we experience the Lord's Supper. But what if we could experience it more often if we didn't always have to have a long prelude? And so today, intentionally, I want to shorten the prelude and invite us to engage in a couple of themes that we've been looking at in Acts. So there's been some teaching. There's been some fellowship. Hopefully there'll be a little more. And now it's breaking bread and prayer time.